Hi, welcome to my podcast. I'm Issa de Guzman, and today we're going to be talking about how we should remember the Woodstock Music Festival. So, let's get back to 1969. Let's face the situation. We've had thousands and thousands of people come here today. Many, many more than we knew or even dreamt or thought would be possible. We're going to need each other to help each other to work this out because we're taxing the systems that we have set up. We're going to be bringing the food in. But the one major thing you have to remember tonight when you go back up into the woods to go to sleep or if you stay here is that the man next to you is your brother. And you damn well better treat each other that way because if they don't, then we blow the whole thing. But we've got it right there. On August 15th through 19th, 1969, on a dairy farm in Bethlehem, New York, hundreds of thousands of people gathered for a music festival that would become synonymous with the counterculture movement. Woodstock, a festival which attracted those seeking an escape from cultural restraints and social unrest, promised three days of peace, music, and good vibes. The Woodstock Music and Art Fair, the three-day Aquarian Exposition at White Lake in Bethel, New York, will give you uncomplicated, unhurried, calm days of peace and music. The summer of 1969, during which Woodstock took place, marked the height of the 1960s. President Nixon had just started to withdraw troops from Vietnam, Three American astronauts had landed on the moon about a month earlier, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated a little over a year earlier, and students were advocating for peace and justice across the nation. In this chaos, many Americans yearned to be free of the restraints of society and the expectations and traditions that had bound them for so long. They wanted an escape. Woodstock not only promised these things, but arguably achieved them as well. Woodstock attendee Molly McCoy recalls, I think what blows my mind the most when I think back is that I don't remember being hungry. I don't remember being tired. I don't remember if I ate or slept, but I was comfortable and everybody helped each other. When you look over the field, you get this sense of peace and it's, it's almost a, like a spiritual um, type of, of, a, of a sensation and you just every year I go back and just stare at that field I, I love it I it's it draws you despite its legacy of rejecting societal values of money and success as a means of happiness the organizers of Woodstock John Roberts Joel Rosenman Artie Cornfield and Michael Lang viewed the festival as just that an investment opportunity an unlikely group, Roberts and Rosenman, had worked together before on other economic ventures, while Cornfield was the youngest vice president of Capitol Records and Lang was the successful organizer of the 1968 Miami Music Festival. They had initially planned for the event to take place at Howard Mills Industrial Park in Warkill, New York, but the town got scared of the crowds and backed out just over a month before the event was scheduled to take place. Luckily, Max Yasger, a 49-year-old dairy farmer in Bethel, New York, offered to rent his fields as an alternative site. The construction was rushed, however, and the producers failed to complete the fences, ticket booths, bathroom facilities, concession stands, and medical tents, among other necessities, before the show. In pictures of the performances, even the stage is clearly unfinished, as cranes hang overhead. The first notable band to sign on was Credence Clearwater Revival, which caused other well-renowned musicians to sign on as well. The event attracted names such as Jefferson Airplane, The Who, Joe Cocker, Janis Joplin, and Santana. 
Due to the chaos of the event, the performers ended up having to be flown in by helicopter to perform since the roads were blocked with the parked cars of festival goers who had abandoned their vehicles on the highway. As the masses began to arrive in the days leading up to the festival, it became clear that it would be impossible to collect tickets due to the unfinished facilities. Several hours into the concert, an announcement was made addressing the problem. It's a free concert from now on. That doesn't mean that anything goes. What that means is we're going to put the music up here for free. What it means is that the people who are put backing this thing, who put up the money for it, are going to take a bit of a bath, a big bath. That's no hype, that's true. They're going to get hurt. But what it means is that these people have in their heads that your welfare is a hell of a lot more important, and the music is, than a dollar. When people heard that the concert was free, they began pouring in from all over the country. An estimated 450,000 youth attended the event over the three days. Some walked up to 11 miles to reach the venue from their cars. When they arrived, a beautiful community began to shape. The use of drugs was extremely prevalent and clothing seemed to be considered optional. Yet the radical festival goers proved their ability to coexist peacefully and freely express themselves despite the poor example of the world around them. The music itself captured the nature of the attendees too. The lyrics often called for cultural rebellion and proclaimed values of peace and freedom. Richie Havens opened the festival, but at the end of his set, he ran out of songs to play and the next performer hadn't been flown in yet. Fearful of what would happen if there was any lull in the entertainment, the producers asked him to continue playing, so he made up his now-famous song, Freedom, on the stage and performed it until a yoga guru took the stage with an unscheduled blessing. Freedom, 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 freedom. His lyrics are simple, and he mostly repeats the word freedom throughout the song, but it speaks to the exact reason why most of his audience was there. Later, at the close of that first day, Joan Baez belted a powerful rendition of the iconic anthem of the civil rights movement, We Shall Overcome. We The connotation of this song would have recalled to the minds of the onlookers the movement for justice that was taking hold of the country while providing a hope that, quote, we will overcome someday, end quote. Perhaps most well-known of all, however, was Jimi Hendrix's performance of The Star-Spangled Banner, which closed out the festival. <laughs> Hendricks replicates the sounds of war through this personal take on the national anthem spoke more than words to a crowd who shared his vehement anti-war sentiment. 
Henry Diltz, a photographer of the festival, was on stage during the performance and recalls that. It was startling when he suddenly started playing the Star Spangled Banner with all the sounds of war and everything. And we were so anti-war. Every single person in that half a million crowd was against the war in Vietnam. This hope was even shared by the performers, who are more similar to their audience than different. David Crosby, member of the group Crosby, Stills, and Nash, explains that. For a minute, we were hopeful. For a minute, we were not facing the Vietnam War. For a minute, we were not facing losing the Kennedys. For a minute, Dr. King's death wasn't hanging over us. For a minute, we were behaving like decent humans. Looking back at the beauty of this almost mythical festival, we tend to forget the serious crises that arose throughout the event. Few people are aware, for example, that a mass electrocution was a legitimate risk the producers took. During the second day, it began to rain, but the performances continued. Due to the rain and massive crowds, the fields where the cords supplying electricity to the stage were buried turned to mud, exposing the wires. If they continued the performances on the main stage, Rosenman and Roberts risked mass electrocution. But, according to the article on the Ringer website titled Peace, Love, and Mass Electrocution, quote, Organizers feared that without constant entertainment, the festival's three days of peace, love, and music would descend into riots, end quote. Whether this fear was legitimate or not, they decided to take the risk and continue the performances. Apparently, Rosenman and Roberts had agreed to commit suicide if there really was a mass electrocution. But thankfully, an electrician was able to switch the lines and the crisis was averted. CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite points out some of the other issues of the festival as well. With 300,000 people, you are not dealing with just a crowd, but virtually a city. And as a city, it had city problems. One youngster died of a suspected overdose of heroin. 80 others were arrested on drug charges. Another boy killed when the driver of a tractor failed to see him inside a sleeping bag. As attendees like Molly McKay mentioned, however, this didn't seem to have a significant effect on the morale of the attendees. Whether it was their common mission for peace or simply the widespread drug use, there was plenty of opportunity for the event to turn violent. Yet it didn't. There were no reported instances of violence throughout the entire event. The festival even brought groups of people together who wouldn't usually interact. CBS News reports that when the festival ran out of food... At that point, the residents of the area, learning of the emergency, began to respond. Housewives handed out hot coffee to stranded youngsters who had not eaten in days. Catholic nuns passed around sandwiches made by Jewish mothers. And the police, many of them from the violent precincts of New York City, invoked the law of practicality and allowed the kids the freedom to take their drugs in public. The fact that all these problems existed, yet the festival still remained peaceful and even engaged positively with the surrounding community, reveals why the legacy of this festival is so positive to this day. Even though many townspeople looked down on the hippies and didn't agree with them in many ways, the mindset of love and community were so contagious that they still rallied around their fellow citizens who needed aid. CBS News sums up the immediate impact of the event. What was learned at White Lake was not that hundreds of thousands of people can paralyze an area and break the law, but that in an emergency at least, people of all ages are capable of compassion. Even the owner of the farm itself revealed the bridge that was being built between generational gaps. Farmer Max Yasker was an older conservative farmer, yet his support of the festival symbolizes the way it drew people together. 
At the conclusion of the three days of peace and music, Yasgar gave a short speech in which he both addresses the many hardships the attendees faced and applauds them for their perseverance. He articulates the profound impact of Woodstock by saying, Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on all the latest 60s topics. Tune in next time!